Section 7 of By Ox Team to California, A Narrative of Crossing the Plains in 1860, by Lavinia Honeyman Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 7, Chapter 11, In Mormon Land, The Trading Post, Discarded Possessions, The Pony Express, Our Indian Protector, Amusing the Children. In due time we arrived at Green River, which we had been told was a dangerous and difficult river to ford, and that to transport our stock and wagon over its depths would take all our little hoard of money. Instead, we hailed it as an oasis in the desert, for it furnished us with clear, sweet water to drink, and our thirsty stock reveled in it to their heart's content. The Green River no longer held any terrors for us, the huge flat-bottomed boat, drawn by ropes suspended from either side across the deep stream, and at a price much less than we expected, safely landed us on the further side of the stream that had been such a great bugbear to us. Here we rested a few days. The river flowed through a narrow valley. The grass, though coarse, proved to be good feed for our cattle, and the rest put new courage and endurance into their weary frames. Here, too, were green trees on which to set our tired eyes. They were only willows and cottonwoods, yet we enjoyed a camp under their grateful shade. A trading post had been established at this ferry for the few mountaineers who owned large herds of cattle. Other emigrants besides ourselves were camping here. Their broken-down teams forced them to trade their worn-out oxen for fresher ones on almost any terms. The mountain stockmen did a lively business with unfortunate emigrants, taking advantage of their necessity. My sympathy was strongly aroused by their distress. Two or three families had been delayed there for two weeks, waiting for their cattle to get strong enough to resume their journey. Their own provisions were getting short and the season growing late. They gravely feared that they would not get through their long journey before the snow fell again on the mountains. We became acquainted at this place with an old trader who in his earlier life had been a man of considerable polish and intelligence, but owing to some unfortunate circumstance in his youth had drifted thus far over the continent in the early forties. Homeless, penniless, and an outcast, he managed in some way to establish himself here at the Green River and by slow degrees had acquired several hundred head of cattle and a considerable band of horses. With true Mormon spirit he had also annexed several squaws for wives, and had any number of half-breed children who swarmed around the filthy quarters that he called home. The rude huts they occupied were in the most squalid surroundings. For many years this had been his home, yet not the slightest effort had been made to improve his mode of living. With all that fertile land surrounding him, there was neither garden nor orchard. Fresh fruit and vegetables were unknown to him and his half-breed family. He was said to be worth seventy-five or one hundred thousand dollars, and yet appeared to be perfectly satisfied with these most wretched conditions. Somewhere I had read that it would take only a few years for the white man to return to the aboriginal condition, 
and it certainly proved true in this man's case most of the men who inhabited these trading posts had squaws for wives it was quite the ordinary thing for the indians to bring their most attractive and winsome daughters and offer them for sale to the white men those not quite so comely would bring thirty or forty dollars while others more pleasing would bring sixty or seventy according to their charms to my point of view they were the most repulsive looking creatures i could see neither beauty grace nor intelligence in their stolid-looking countenances their manners and habits were disgusting and offensive the women thus brought and sold were no truer to their masters than their more civilized sisters of the same caste in other countries and were ever ready to decamp with any soldier or other man who offered sufficient inducements in the way of beads blankets or other gaudy paraphernalia after leaving green river at many points we would come across the discarded belongings of the emigrants who preceded us we were enabled to form an idea of the condition of their stock whether horses or cattle by the goods and chattels they were continually discarding in their endeavor to lighten the burden of their overworked and worn-out teams once by the wayside we came across a heavy old-fashioned cook-stove which some emigrant had hauled all those weary miles of mountain and desert only to discard it at last no doubt some poor forlorn woman was now compelled to do her cooking by the primitive campfire perhaps much against her will i could imagine the heated arguments when day after day that heavy stove had to be loaded and unloaded no doubt the air was blue many times with a volley of emphatic and profane words hurled against that inoffensive but cumbersome article a little wooden cradle nearby looked pathetic in its loneliness and the tiny new-made grave that we had passed a few days previous told too truly the cause of its desertion it was no unusual sight to see wagon boxes log chains tires and other heavy articles abandoned to lighten the loads and the most astonishing thing to me was that these things would lie there without attracting the notice of either indians or herdsmen they proved to have no value to these denizens of the wilderness the hills west of green river were thinly covered with straggling groves of pines and cedars grass was more abundant in the little valleys and the streams of water had lost the milky look which they acquired from the clay wash lying near the desert lands we were still in the midst of sagebrush even in these fertile valleys but it was no longer universal and alone the wild current and other shrubs became more abundant occasionally we came upon a little patch of land cultivated by some progressive mormon it was a matter of astonishment to us that the herdsmen of these fertile districts with their cattle roaming over a thousand hills had never experimented with cultivating the soil they never knew the taste of cabbage or tomato a potato was considered the greatest luxury and was brought to the trading posts from miles away as for cultivated fruit of any description they knew it not 
we found in the canyons a wild and sour gooseberry which proved to be fairly palatable and at intervals near the streams grew a wild grass whose succulent roots gave out the flavor of the cucumber we had watched the indians eating this grass and testing it ourselves thought it very good but it was found rarely i had grown very tired of bacon day after day the very smell of beans cooking nauseates me to this day i have never overcome my antipathy to rice in any form while stewed prunes are still an abomination in my sight our diet was confined mainly to these articles it was impossible to buy fresh vegetables on our route and our canned fruit and vegetables had long given out we had grown so weary of the sameness of our daily diet that the intense longing for something different grew upon us and we looked forward anxiously to fort bridger where we hoped in a few days to find fresh meat and vegetables from laramie westward we were in the line of the celebrated pony express which was established in april eighteen sixty to carry important mail more rapidly than was possible in the overland stage our daily excitement was in watching for its fearless riders as they flew by us on their swift ponies it was nearly ten years in advance of the first overland telegraph which could not be maintained until there was a line of railroad parallel to it the pony express was an attempt to carry letters by private service from st joseph missouri to sacramento california in ten days it was a daring enterprise to attempt to cover nearly two thousand miles of prairie desert and mountain by solitary riders from station to station these stations were at intervals of about thirty miles in a year's time it proved more than human endurance could stand the stations consisted of a rude hut for the keeper enclosed in a high stockade where the relief ponies were corralled the certainty of always finding water at these stations induced us to make extra efforts to camp near them at nightfall once it became our sad duty to bury the partially burned and mutilated body of the man in charge of the station to prevent the wolves and coyotes from devouring his remains the indians had been there before us killed and scalped the keeper run off with the ponies and left the stockade in flames alarming as this was we were obliged to camp near the smoldering ruins one morning while we lingered near one of these stations a rider who looked like a mere boy came flying into the post the man whose place he filled having been killed by the indians the pony had made his way to the next station alone this youth had ridden hard through the darkness of the night trying to cover both his ground and that of the man who had been shot he quickly changed horses took his package of letters and was off again on his perilous way these brief stops at the stations were all that broke the monotony of untold hardships and danger while the riders were young sturdy and robust men one of the essential requirements was that they must be of light weight as the ponies were not expected to carry more than one hundred and fifty pounds the superior endurance of those ponies 
saved many a fearless man in his race for life with roaming bands of Indians. For some time after we had separated ourselves from our unpleasant traveling companions, we traveled without adventure of any kind, and saw nothing of the Indians that were supposed to be on the warpath. We flattered ourselves that we were too near Fort Bridger to have any fears. One evening, however, as we drove into a little fertile valley, we came in sight of an encampment of the supposed foe, with a large band of ponies feeding on the rich grass. Their rude teepees were clustered near the stream within a mile of the road. Uncertain of the reception awaiting us, we made camp as usual. In a little while, first one Indian, then another, came around our fire, until I had an audience of several watching me prepare our evening meal. I was careful to bake an extra quantity of biscuit that night, for we were so completely at their mercy, I thought it wise to conciliate them in every way possible. I found it no easy task, as it required several skillets full before I had enough. James generously handed out his precious tobacco for them to smoke with him around the campfire. Next morning we drove away from our camp, leaving a number of them who still hung around for the last cup of coffee. As we waved our farewells to them, we noticed one of them mount his pony and follow us, not closely, but keeping us well in sight. When we stopped for our noonday rest, he soon joined us, and of course we invited him to partake of our frugal luncheon, hoping that he would return to his band. But he continued to follow us until nightfall. When we prepared to camp, he did likewise, staking out his pony with a long rope of braided leather which he carried, and approaching my box of cooking utensils, he took from it the large knife I used in cooking, and, pointing to some coarse grass that grew near the water, he proceeded to cut and gather an armful, which he placed under our wagon and prepared his bed for the night. While alarmed and anxious, we were powerless and made the best of our novel situation. I prepared a more bountiful meal when I found we were to entertain this most unwelcome guest. After eating a hearty meal, which he seemed to enjoy, he smoked a while with my husband. All this time there was no word of conversation, as neither he nor we could communicate except by signs. Finally he rolled himself beneath the wagon, and we went to rest in our little tent, but slept fitfully with one eye open the balance of the night. This continued for three days, and we concluded that he had adopted us, and intended to remain with us for the balance of our pilgrimage. On the evening of the third day, after replenishing his inner man with a hearty supper, he arose, caught his pony, which was feeding a short distance from the camp, and, pointing backward, tried to make us understand that he was going to return to his tribe. As soon as we divined that he was about to leave us, I tied up a loaf of bread, some bacon, a cup full of sugar, and gave it to him, and we saw him depart, wondering why he came and why he went. Not for several days was the mystery explained. Meeting an old scout at a watering place where we stopped one night, we related the circumstance to him. He told us that the country through which we were going at that time was filled with Indians who were unfriendly to emigrants, 
and this indian was sent with us to show that we were under their special care and not to be molested if that were true it went to prove that there was honor among these savage tribes of the wilderness our lonely and unprotected situation must have appealed to them and our uniform kindness was rewarded in many ways perhaps when we knew it not at any rate we could truthfully say we never received any ill at their hands and came through the various tribes without the loss of anything save one bright new tin tea-kettle that i had bought in denver its brightness proved too much of a temptation to an elderly squaw who came to visit us and carefully seated herself beside it it disappeared when she did under the folds of her soiled and tattered blanket another circumstance i think worth mentioning here once in passing a group of indians i noticed that one sat wrapped in his blanket the image of despair the expression on his countenance proved that he was suffering great pain my husband spoke to his squaw who was standing near and said to her brave heap sick she shook her head but at the same time opened her mouth and pointed to her teeth and then to the suffering brave james approached the indian and by signs coaxed him to open his mouth he found the molar had a large cavity which was the cause of his suffering i had brought with me several vials of toothache drops for my little son had frequent attacks of toothache bringing forth one of the bottles containing the soothing drops and a piece of cotton with the aid of a sharp splinter i inserted some of the remedy into the aching tooth the effect was magical and i was surprised to watch the change that came over the sufferer's expressive countenance he raised his eyes that had been sternly fixed on the ground rubbed his face slowly then turned towards his squaw who was standing behind him watching the effect of the remedy the white squaw was employing and in a low tone communicated to her that the pain was relieved then turning to the other indians who were grouped around he spoke in a louder voice in a moment we were surrounded by them eager to see the little vial that contained the magical drops it was critically examined and passed from one to the other and although we could not understand a word yet their expressions of gratitude were perfectly intelligible i left the bottle and the piece of raw cotton with the indian sufferer for i well knew that the toothache would again return another time while waiting in camp over sunday i had been repairing some of my husband's red flannel shirts one was too far worn to be of any service further and i had relegated it to the rag bag a number of indian children stood around watching me at my work and my sewing utensils seemed very curious to them the idea came to me to fashion for them a rag doll and see what the effect would be on these stolid children of the wilderness with a portion of white cloth taken from my work bag and the remains of the discarded red shirt i made a rag baby marking the features of the doll with colored thread my efforts were closely watched by the curious children and when i finished the doll i handed it to the smallest girl at first the child did not seem to realize that she was to keep it after each one of the children had examined it thoroughly they gave it back to me finally i made the little one understand that she was to keep it 
and when one of the larger children attempted to take it from her, she uttered a weird cry and started off on a swift run with the rag baby hugged closely to her breast. In a little while, two or three squaws came into our camp with the child and doll, and by signs asked for another. I soon discovered I would be very busy if I attempted to supply them with rag babies. But I made another for them, showing them how to do it, and gave them the remains of the red flannel shirt and other pieces of cloth that I could spare, and sent them off rejoicing. This was my last effort, however, in trying either to instruct or amuse the Indians. Only on Sundays did we linger in camp long enough to have any extra time on our hands, and our inability to make ourselves understood made the effort tiresome. Chapter 12 Salt Lake City Disappointment at Fort Bridger Letters from Home An Old Acquaintance Mormon women. At last we reached Fort Bridger, so named for a trader who first settled there. Later on it was used as an outpost and relief station for the great rush of Mormons to Salt Lake, and afterwards as a fort of the United States government. We were told that Fort Bridger was the terminus of the great American desert, and we fondly hoped to get a supply of fresh vegetables within its borders but the few potatoes were held at such a price that we could not afford to buy them, and they proved to be the only vegetable we found cultivated until we reached Salt Lake City. As soon as we arrived at Fort Bridger, James went immediately to buy some fresh meat and vegetables, never dreaming for a moment that there would be any difficulty in getting them. On approaching the sutler of the fort, he was informed that the government did not allow the sale of meat or other provisions to outside parties. No persuasion was of any avail. James tried to explain that his wife was not well and needed fresh meat sorely, but the man turned a deaf ear to all his entreaties. Very much disappointed, James turned to go without it when a private soldier who overheard the conversation said, stay pilgrim no sick woman shall go without a bite of fresh meat while i'm around we can't sell any but i can give her my ration and not go hungry either in this manner was the meat procured in return for the kind thoughtfulness of the soldier i sent him my beloved ivanhoe most of our journey between denver and salt lake when not desert was through and over the interminable ranges of the rocky mountains for many weary days we were continually ascending and descending. We no sooner arrived at the top of one rugged mountain when as far as the eye could reach other ranges just as steep loomed up before us, and it seemed an endless time before we struck the long, gradual slope or plain and arrived at the summit of those grand old mountains through the South Pass, and thence through Bridger and down Echo Canyon, where our shouts and songs reverberated from the mountainside. We followed its little stream until we reached that plain which we knew to be the center of Mormondom. Ever since we had crossed Green River, we had been told that we were now in the country of the Mormons, and we had been warned, if we desired their goodwill, 
we should be careful in what manner we expressed ourselves about their peculiar institutions to the cattleman or settler whom we might meet on the road especially had we been warned not to admit that we had emigrated from missouri as the people of that state had incurred the most bitter hatred of the mormons it was the missourians who had ousted them from their first stronghold at nauvoo illinois and caused them to take the long perilous journey to this distant land where they could not only preach but practice their religion without molestation fearful tales had been told us of how whole trains emigrating from missouri were surrounded and captured by mormons disguised as indians the women and children kept in bondage and the men put to death it was at the end of a long hot summer day we had been winding down through narrow ravines and over the abominable roads still used by all the heavy merchant teams that bore goods and other provisions to the city of the saints emerging from the hills we came out on the broad plateau that overlooked the valley of the great salt lake the city was still several miles from us and although we had two or three hours of daylight before us we had to curb our desire to enjoy the comforts and luxuries that we had hoped to find within its boundaries not until towards noon of the following day did we descend weary dusty and browned with over a thousand miles of jolting fording and camping into the veritable city that so long had seemed a myth to us poor emigrants it bore a most delightful aspect it was regularly and handsomely laid out on a level plain little irrigating canals flowed on either side of the streets whose clear cold waters were led into the orchards and gardens surrounding every home the houses of that time were generally small one-story buildings of adobe and every householder had an acre of ground to cultivate around his home the gardens diffused an air of freshness and coolness that all could appreciate but none more than the traveler who had just crossed the great desert at that day the city of salt lake boasted of only one business street on which were the post office and principal stores since leaving denver we had had no opportunity to get letters and i did not allow any time to escape after reaching salt lake city before going to the post office how eagerly i clasped the precious missives to my breast when they were in my possession i was almost afraid to open them for fear that they might contain sorrowful news driving that thought from my mind i hastily read one after the other and when i had been assured that they were all well and happy as i had left them then more at my leisure did i read over and over every word they contained letters from home what a comforting sound to wanderers like ourselves cut off from the world and beyond the pale of civilized life we camped for several days in the outskirts of the city and enjoyed to our heart's content the green fruit and fresh vegetables that we were able to buy or trade from the mormon women these women thronged into our camp with everything in the way of produce which they were glad to exchange for any articles the emigrants desired to part with at that period when every pound of freight had to be brought overland by wagons the tariff was fabulously high 
and if these mormon women could acquire anything by trading their fruits vegetables butter and cheese they were that much ahead so here i parted with my comfortable feather bed every mormon who came into camp wanted to buy it at first i steadily refused to part with it but finally i was offered an amount which in our pressing need for money i thought it unwise to refuse so great was the demand for feather beds and pillows that i might have sold it for even a larger sum through all the journey i had held on to my three flat irons but for some time i had ceased to use them as the clothing we wore required only cleanliness these flat irons i bartered with a woman for a tub of fresh butter which i hoped would last us through to california and i exchanged a much battered brass-handled shovel and tongs for a pair of cowhide shoes for myself which in a few days grew rough red and rusty although they lasted until the end of the journey i was only too glad to trade them many articles which i could dispense with in exchange for their fresh fruit and vegetables butter eggs and cheese of which i laid in as liberal a supply as would keep for the rest of our trip while we camped in the outskirts of the city we found it necessary to buy hay for our stock this was brought to us each day by a mormon woman the hay tied in a huge bundle and carried on her back and shoulders this required several trips before a sufficient quantity could be brought in this manner and when we expressed our surprise that a woman should bear such a burden she replied morosely mormon women are only beasts of burden a man came into our camp one day to sell us some grain while dickering with my husband over the price and quantity he kept his eyes fastened on me as i stood preparing our dinner suddenly he came over and reached out his hand to shake hands with me i gazed at him in amazement and i suppose my countenance showed my surprise he said you do not know me no i replied i do not well he said i know you and you are the daughter of robert honeyman calling my father's name he then said that he had worked for my father when i was a little girl and telling me his own name brought to my recollection the time place and circumstances i could not deny to him that while we were not missourians yet we had emigrated from missouri i felt somewhat startled and annoyed to meet him in salt lake city however i assumed a smiling face and said oh yes i now remember you well and made him welcome in our humble camp he informed me that he had embraced the mormon faith marrying a mother and two daughters and invited us very cordially to visit him in his home i replied that if his wives would care to see me it would give me great pleasure to accept his invitation in the evening he returned bringing his wives to call upon me they were plain commonplace people on a par with most of the women i had seen there except that they were americans while the majority of the women were foreigners they insisted that we should dine with them the next day to gratify my curiosity to see how a mormon household was conducted i accepted their kind invitation and we enjoyed their hospitality exceedingly there was no reference to the difference in our opinions 
and from all I observed, each wife was treated alike. The mother, who was also the third wife, entertained us, while the daughters, who were the first and second wives, prepared a very excellent dinner. They seemed perfectly contented with the existing order of things, but many of the Mormon women with whom we conversed were dissatisfied and unhappy. They worked hard and looked worn and dejected. They performed the most menial labor, many of them working in the fields all day in the broiling sun. But I must say that I never saw a community wherein existed so much industry and thrift combined with so much ignorance and such implicit faith in their fanatical leaders. We lingered for several days in Salt Lake City and cleaned house, so to speak. That is, we unloaded and rearranged our stores, repacked our depleted boxes, aired and cleaned our bedding, which was impossible when we traveled every day, brushed out the accumulated sand and alkali dust, repaired the wagon which the constant wear over the bad roads made necessary, and had our faithful old horse newly shod. We were soon to find that we had overstocked ourselves with fresh fruit and vegetables. We hoped that they might last us at least a month, but had not counted on the hot sun across the Utah desert, which so wilted and shriveled them that they were no longer appetizing, and we threw them away. The tub of fresh butter, which looked so hard and firm when stowed away in our wagon, was soon turned by the hot sun of the desert into liquid oil by day, though it hardened a little at night. For a while we used it even in its liquid state, but eventually it became so rancid that it too was left by the wayside. We had been told by fellow travelers before reaching Salt Lake that the Mormons never allowed a young woman to leave their borders, and I must confess to a feeling of trepidation as we drove out of the city of Salt Lake. Even when we were several miles beyond its borders, my fears were not wholly allayed. We had heard rumors of emigrants pursued and overtaken. After they had fought, they had gotten safely away. The women and female children were torn from husbands and fathers and taken back to the city to be held as wives to some noted elder of the church, while the husbands were tortured and killed if they offered the least resistance. But happily, I found that I had been harboring unnecessary fears and in a few days I had acquired my usual serenity. End of chapter 12 and section 7